0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. If you have a Bible, and not that all of you might, um, but would you just take that out? And even if it's on your phone, um, feel free to just kind of take that out. This is This is a significant part of why we gather on Sunday mornings, um, every single week. But particularly today, we're talking about our relationship to Scripture. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hands today. We have some in the back. They're free. It's our gift to you. Um, But I would encourage you, whether you left yours at home, whether it's on your phone, you don't have one, um, get one. Um, I would encourage you, if you don't have a, a kind of a hard copy Bible, I would encourage you to get one of those as well, and we'll explain that in a minute of why this is significant. Um, but I want us just to kind of sit with this in, in our lap, and I want us to think about what this represents. And for you in your life, this could be a myriad of different things. This book could represent um, something that's life-giving, it's a kind of a regular part of your, your day, maybe you open up your mornings with this. Maybe for you this is a relic of your past, something that at one time you had a, some sort of connection with. Maybe for you this has been used in, against you. It has been used to manipulate or it has been used to kind of uh, make you feel guilty. Uh, maybe for some of you you're kind of indifferent. You're like, well, I, I know what that is. But I think the, what I find is my relationship to this book is consistently changing. And our hope this morning is that we'd have a conversation about the role that Scripture plays in our life. And if this is something that is a deep, passionate part of your life, I think that there's something today where you'll be challenged. If this is something that's not a part of your life at all, hopefully you'd be inspired that it would move into that. And before we read kind of our our opening text this morning, just just kind of a brief overview of how you got this thing in your lap. How you, whether it's on your phone or whether it's kind of a hard copy Bible. But for much of the, the story of the scriptures... not everyone had one. Most of what you learned from scripture was recited to you. You would learn it. You would hear it. You'd sit in a room. It would be recited to you. And if you actually had a hard copy, whether that was a scroll or early manuscript, that was incredibly valuable. The people who would take the time to make copies of this oftentimes would take years. And the Jewish people around the times of Jesus, there was a group of people that would translate the Bible and it was was so important to them that they would do such a good job, is that after they had done the entire Bible, they had figured out what the middle letter was of the entire Bible and they would count. And if that middle letter was off, they would burn the scroll. It was so important to them that it was done rightly that if anything was off, then it was to be completely disregarded. This is years of someone's life. The amount of care and scrutiny that would go over to to making sure that it was accurately translated. Um, We actually have no idea. There's a guy by the name of John Wycliffe in the 14th century who had a passion to actually take the bible and at that time which was translated into latin but was no longer the language of the people for those living in northern europe to translate it into english and when he began to do this journey he had to do it in secret because they they believed that to translate into the common language was actually to profane the bible and he had almost completed his translation of the bible at the time he was found out, it was, it was banned just eight years after he wrote it, and he was ended up being executed before he was ever able to even finish it. About 150 years later, there began to be this thing called the Reformation, where there began to be this outpouring of this desire that our faith would be based upon this book, not on tradition, but on scripture alone. And with that, there was this trifecta of these three things, The Reformation was led largely by this lawyer named Martin Luther. But around that same time, uh, Gutenberg created his printing press. And one of the driving forces behind the printing press was to create the Bible in mass quantity in the people's people's language. And so around that time, there's another person a little bit less known by the name of Tyndale. William Tyndale ended up translating, taking Wycliffe's notes and doing his own translation, getting some other people to help him and officially translated the Bible from Latin into English. And then Gutenberg, Gutenberg's printing press began to just make mass copies of this. And slowly but surely, Bibles started to be ending up in the language of the common people in different in different villages and eventually into different homes. Time Magazine, said that the most significant future-shaping moment in the second millennium was the printing of the Bible in Gutenberg's press. Time magazine said the most important moment in the second millennium was Gutenberg starting to print the Bible. And you're like, well, why is that the case? Well, Tyndale actually ended up being executed for his translation as well. It was, it was so controversial to put the Bible into people's hands that people in the droves were being martyred for their belief that everyone should have a Bible in their lap like we do today. And as that continued to progress, England began to start combining church and state in such a way that they wanted their own version, the English version, which ended up becoming the King James Version, the the translation that was approved for the Church of England. And with that, there was a mix of power and government and so there began to be a group of people that, again, pressed against this idea of just saying, no, 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 we don't want to be mixed up with the state and the church. We just want the Bible. This group of people is called the Puritans. The Puritans were highly persecuted. Eventually, many of them left for what they called the New World. And our country live in today was largely founded by people fleeing religious persecution because of their belief of this book. This book now largely sits in our life untouched and unread not because of its unaccessibility but maybe the opposite maybe it's so accessible it's so available that our relationship to this book does not look like hundreds of years of church history where people are willing to die for the sake of making sure it was accessible and I wanted this just to be this awareness for us to just... And this, by the way, please, me. This, that's not to guilt anyone. Like that, that's the furthest thing I want to do. Um, but I do want us to have an understanding that our relationship with the Bible is incredibly unique compared to the rest of church history. And I want us to just toy around with the question, why is that? Why is it that our relationship to the Bible seems so different in terms of the rest of the church history that has had this high, high reverence for the scripture. And so what I wanna do today is a couple of things, Um, is I wanted to kind of draw us into the series we're in. We're in a series called Trellis right now. And trellis is a, a structure that holds up vines. And this is a picture of what we call a rule of life, which at the end of this series, we will all construct one. We'll construct these rules and rhythms and habits that will help us expose our hearts to the Spirit of God working in us through these different rhythms and disciplines. And we're doing two a week. And today, in the the map, we are doing Scripture and Spirit, Word and Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible. And what I found is as in my own study and preparation is that although these two can totally be looked at two unique spiritual disciplines, openness to the Holy Spirit and a discipline of reading the Word, today we're going to be looking at them as one. What does it look like for us to approach the Bible in conjunction with and in relationship with the Holy Spirit? And maybe that will be an open window into a new relationship that we can have with the Scripture. So with that, would we stand to our feet? We're going to read our text for today. When we're reading out Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, uh, the Psalms are the Hebrew hymnal, right? This is the worship book for the Jewish people, the people of God, and the church. And so when we read this, this is the opening psalm. This is what orients us to the entire book of the Psalms and arguably the entire relationship to us with the scripture. So Psalm chapter one, verse one says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You'll notice this passage has to do with rhythms and disciplines. It talks about sitting, standing, walking, what you do in the morning what you do in the night. And what the psalmist is saying is that if you orient your life, the rhythms and the patterns of your life, towards um, his, his wording, is wickedness, unrighteousness, ungodliness, he says, you'll eventually be hollowed out like chaff and you'll just be blown in the wind. He says, but if you meditate in the morning and at night on the word of god or the law of god the scriptures this is their word of saying the bible if this becomes your sustenance because then you'll be like a tree planted like a stream of water who yields in fruit and season and he's using jewish poetry to to paint these two contrasting images and as we look at that these different rhythms of morning and night and where we sit and stand and walk understanding that this is not just supposed to be something that we uh, take in but this is something who's supposed to be that we engage with through the holy spirit the holy spirit was given to the church in every single believer after christ ascended and that he gives us a unique relationship to the scripture around us why because this is a spiritual book This is not a textbook. This is not a moral living book. This is a spiritual book, which means in order to read it, we need to engage our spirit. Eugene Peterson says that spiritual writing, spirit-sourced writing, requires spiritual reading. A reading that honors words as holy, words as a basic means of forming an intricate web of relationships between God and the human, between all things visible and invisible. you might be like, well, does the scripture say that? If you look at 2 Timothy 3, or chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed. That Greek word breath is the same word for spirit that God's spirit is actively involved, it's God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power, in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. R.T. Kendall, the British pastor, says, I cannot think of anything that would honor God more or threaten Satan more than the word and the spirit coming together simultaneously, as was demonstrated in the book of Acts. As long as these two remain separate to any degree, it becomes easier for the devil to keep the church from making a significant impact in the world. We need both. We need the scriptures and the spirit to be intertwined in our life. And that's really our hope and goal this morning is to be able to challenge how, this is for all of us, including myself, how we approach the Bible. So three questions we're going to ask today in terms of the practice of a spirit-filled reading of scripture. Number one, why do we need it? Why do we need that practice of engaging the Holy Spirit when we read the Bible? Two, how do we engage it practically? And thirdly, what can we expect from this new practice in our life that we're going to be instituting? Number one, why do we need it? Why do we need to be able to enter into relationship with the Bible, with the Holy Spirit, fueling us? Well, I want us to turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. This is Jesus' greatest collections of teachings. It's, it's his, his kind of, his manifesto for kingdom living. And in the very beginning and the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the Bible. At the very beginning, in Matthew five seventeen, says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a Jewish way of talking about the scripture. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments And teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The key word we want to focus on there is when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, which some people would like to assume. It's like, hey, Jesus came, we don't need the Old Testament, we we just need to listen to what he says. Jesus doesn't think of the Bible like that. He says, No, I am the fulfillment. And we've talked about that here before, but that Greek word is so essential. It's the Greek word telos. If you think of the idea of telescope, it's where you're projecting to. What Jesus is saying is, all of the Bible is pointing towards me. And therefore, every least stroke of a pen cannot be done away with, because all of it is pointing towards me. It's being colored by me. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. So Jesus, in referencing himself, says that he is the telos and he is the rock. The Bible is pointing to Jesus as those things, the end goal and the rock. And the Bible's full of it. It's full of these messianic prophecies. There's 365 messianic prophecies that point to Jesus. And he fulfills every single one of them. But the verse I really want us to kind of hone in on here is John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that the word, this Bible, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Thank you, Jesus. There's something about when we recognize that when Jesus came, he did not just come with information, but he came with a life that showed us how to live. And the reason why I think this is so important is a lot of times we assume that the problem is biblical literacy. And biblical literacy just means how much we know the Bible, which statistically is saying that we know less and less about the Bible than ever before. And, and which is, which is something to be, we should be considerate of. What does it mean that we know less and less of the Bible than ever before? Is that the problem? Is that the problem with our culture? I think one thing to point out is that if you actually track when America was most biblically literate, it was actually the time when slavery was at its highest point. And the reason I bring that up, Dr. Tim Mackey pointed that out a couple years ago is that just because we know the bible doesn't mean that we're necessarily living out the way of jesus so the problem is not just that we need more information the problem is that we need the word to transform us and that when we think the bible is just a vehicle to give us more knowledge then it becomes a vehicle for legalism it becomes a sense of self-righteousness like well if i read the bible like every day or like you know four or five times a week then i'm probably doing good with the Lord. It becomes this, like, way to measure, like, how we're actually doing. But what we need to recognize is that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We need something deeper. We need something deeply connected to what the purpose of the Bible is, which leads to our second point. How do we engage it? So, If the point of the scripture is to direct us towards Jesus, it's the role of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures leading us towards Jesus, well, how do we engage it? Well, if we go back to our text we read in Psalm chapter 1, it says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the law day and night. That person is like a stream planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. I love that, that phrase, whoever meditates on the day on the word day and night. And so I wanna focus on that, but before we talk about what does it mean to meditate on the scripture, which I believe is gonna be central to our our rediscovery of the beauty of it, I wanna talk about where we are as a culture. Because I think one of the the things that has eroded our value of scriptures is our high value and consumption of information rather than transformation. Robert Mulholl in his book Invitation to a Journey says, information has become power the person or group possessing the best information is in a position to control their world of activity and interest but this controlling aspect of our approach to information becomes a debilitating bondage when we approach spiritual reading in brief the text opens us to god's control of our lives for god's purposes this is a radical reversal of the dynamics of an informational culture in which our possessions our possession and use of information enables us to impose our purposes on the world of our activities. I remember reading an article a few years ago when um, Google and Apple were buying for the most profitable company um, in the world. And what they were saying, the headline was, technology, or sorry, information is the new currency. And what they're saying is, whatever company has more information of us, carries the greater level of currency. And the rest of the world is watching that. And so what are they striving for? We have a a whole technological revolution built upon the consumption of information of us to what? Then give us a high amount of information back and i think that with that we that has trickled into our understanding of scripture like well i i should probably when i read i should be able to get the same kind of knowledge and information as i get through a TikTok video a social media post a news article a podcast and if i'm not getting the kind of information as quickly as i get from those things then it's probably not working as well and so our relationship to information i think has challenged us from seeing the value of the word of god Yet, we are not approaching the Bible just for information. Yes, it has that. We are approaching the Bible for formation. We want the Bible to form us. And in order to do that, it's not just to consume. We actually have to receive something. God's innate activity in us. And so what's the solution? Well, I think it's in that Hebrew word, meditate. When he tells them, he says, whoever meditates on this day and night, then they're the ones who have roots that grow deep into the ground and yield their fruit. They're by a stream of water. And that Hebrew word is the Hebrew word hagah. Can you just say that for me? Haggah. If you remember, I know sometimes we talk about kind of the original language. This is a good one, I think, for you to remember. Hagah is a very fascinating word. It normally gets translated as meditate. But it also gets translated in other ways. Eugene Peterson, who we quoted before, wrote a book called Eat This Book, and in that he does a word study on this Hebrew word haggah. I want to read you his finding I found it incredibly helpful and challenging and significant for me this week in my relationship to scripture. He says, haggah is a word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for reading the kind of writing that deals with their souls. But meditate is far too tame a word of what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited, suited to what I do in a quiet chapel on my knees with a candle burning on the altar, or to what my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with the Bible open in her lap. But when Isaiah's lion and my dog meditate, by the way, there, there's a verse in Hebrew that talks about a lion um its prey. Chewing its prey. And he starts talking about his dog chewing a bone, just for reference sake, what he's talking about here. He says, But when Isaiah's lion and my dog meditate, they chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. Isaiah's lion meditating his goat, if that's what it was, my dog meditating his bone. There's a certain kind of writing that invites this kind of reading. Soft purrs and low growls we taste and savor and anticipate and take in the sweet and spicy, mouth-watering and soul-energizing morsel words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isaiah used the same word hagah a few pages later for the cooing of a dove. One careful reader of this text caught the spirit of the word when he said that hagah means that a person is lost in his religion. He continues saying, Haggah referred to the process of learning the Bible while pronouncing it aloud, literally murmuring the word with our mouths. We often refer to this as learning by heart, but is more aptly described by the ancient as learning by mouth. Reading aloud, repeating the word engages more our senses and deeply imprints the text upon our hearts. One commentator says, Haggah is letting a very slow dissolving lozenge melt imperceptibly in your mouth. And so when he says to meditate on the word of God, what he's saying is that that word is used to kind of to chew on something, to digest something, to, and like a dove coos over something. Again, it's strange language, but I found it very helpful for me this week is I don't read the Bible like that. I read it for like, hey, what's that verse? I can write down in my journal and then I can like write a prayer and then I can go and like get my kids ready for school. But what the... The psalmist is saying is you need to chew on it over again. You need to digest it. It needs to get into your body. It needs to get inside of you. You need to sing over it, murmur the words. It needs to be something that comes a part of who you are. And so what I want to do is I want to point us to a practice that helps us meditate well. And this is the the practice of Lectio Divina. Um, This is a journal that we have in the back i still i believe we still have some the 12 bucks if you don't have 12 bucks feel free to just take one Um, but lectio divina is um, it means spiritual reading and it's a tool that's been used for hundreds of years by the church to engage scripture and i want to walk through each of the steps of lectio divina not to prescribe this this is how you have to read the bible Because the Bible doesn't tell us this is how we have to read the Bible. But I do find it incredibly helpful for me. And what I want to do is each one of these steps, I'm I'm hoping that one of these might stand out for you that you can incorporate into how you engage the Bible. And so the practices are, and this is, by the way, this is Latin. Um, So this is taken from uh, kind of early church fathers uh, just outside of Rome. This is why these words sound extra fancy. They're not extra fancy. They're just Italian. So uh, silencio. Lectio, Meditatio, Oratio, Contemplatio, and Incarnatio. So first, I would encourage you, when you open up the Bible, the first practice is is silence. So actually don't start by reading, start with silence to prepare that inner part of who you are for what God's going to say. And the reason why I think it's so important and again, this is, by the way, this is something I've been trying to do. I do this, I do a lot of these regularly, but this weekend especially, I've been like, all right, God, I'm just going to approach the, the Bible differently. And so when I sit down, a lot of times before I even open up my journal or my Bible, or I even see what I'm going to read and start thinking, like, oh, I know what that book is, I know what that passage is, I just sit there in quiet, and I pay attention. I pay attention to what I'm coming to that table with. For me, it's my like my dining room table. Every morning... Around 5.30 or 6, I sit down, and I sit there in silence. It's the only time my house is silent, which is probably why I choose to do it then. And I just pay attention. I try and open myself up to what, what the Lord might be wanting to do, say to me. Again, before I even open up my Bible, I'm, just, I'm aware and I'm paying attention to what the Holy Spirit might be doing. Carlo Caretta says, Prayer is like love. Words pour out at first. Then we are more silent and can communicate in monosyllables. In difficulties, a gesture is enough. A word or nothing at all. Love is enough. Thus, the time comes when words are superfluous. The soul converses with God with a single loving glance. Um, I just love that that language. The soul converses with God with a single loving glance. It's almost like opening yourself up to God's gaze upon you. Psalm 46.10 says, to be still and to know that I am God. Did you know that Psalm 46 is a chapter about war. It's not like David sitting in a pasture writing about being still. It's saying, in the intensity of my life as king, I need to be still to know that you are God. The next part of Lectio Divina is Lectio. It's the reading. That we start to to read the scripture, largely that has been picked for us. If you're part of a reading plan or the lectionary, as you start to read this thing uh, that's been kind of prescribed. And as you start to read this, Ignatius of Loyola encourages us to use imaginative reading, which I find really helpful. And so imaginative reading is when you use your five senses to engage with what the scripture is actually saying. And so you think about, let's say, Matthew 14, 22 it's to 33. It's a chapter of Jesus coming to his disciples in the storm, if you're familiar with that story. If not, you can imagine it. And as you read, let's say you're reading Matthew 14, you're reading about Jesus coming to the disciples in the middle of the storm. Then what you start doing is say you start imagining, you activate this, you say, it's two in the morning and you are on a boat on a lake where the disciples, when a furious storm breaks out, what do you hear? What do the waves look like? What is the feeling in your stomach as you bob perilously up and down? How does the wind feel in your face? In the distance, you see what appears to be a ghost gliding on the water towards you. How do you feel? How are the others in the boat reacting? What's the sound brushing up against the waves hitting the boat? Do you, can you taste and smell the salt from the sea? And all of a sudden you're reading Matthew 14 incredibly different. And as you're doing this, the, the idea is that you are thinking about not just the words on the page, but what is happening? you can especially do this with narrative, but what's happening behind the scenes? Like what are you feeling, smelling, sensing, touching in that kind of scenario? And as you begin to start taking colors, you move from Lectio to Meditatio, and this is where you begin to start nurturing the thinking dynamic in a greater way. And so there's a couple of just practical ways I would encourage you guys to do this. Number one is if you can, try going on a walk. Like if you're reading, And and sometimes you can even do this if you like just have the the Bible app. Like after you read it, or if you're listening to it, actually walk around, think about what's going on. Chew like a lion or a dog over a bone, or a cooing of a dove. Start reciting the words, thinking about what's going on. Find yourself living into that. Another way that you can do this is activate just the memorization of Scripture, which is incredibly lost form. Um, It's crazy. Jen has so much Scripture memorized that will start saying something, it's just like in her. This is what the Bible talks about uh, when it says hide God's word in your heart. Now, in a in a culture where no one had a Bible on their lap, you had to memorize. And if you were a young Jewish person, you would if you were a young Jewish boy, you'd memorize the first five books of the Bible. And if you went on to rabbi school, you'd memorize the entire Old Testament and you could recite any single verse. And it was hidden inside your heart. And because of that, I think about GPS and our smartphones, how it's messed with our memory. Um, How many of you guys have a significant person in your life you don't know their phone number? Right? Like, and you're you're ashamed to say it. To be honest, I don't know my daughter's phone number because I've never had to memorize it. Like, she she got a phone at a point in life where it's just typed in. How many of you guys still type into GPS somewhere you should definitely know how to drive? Like, you've driven them probably a hundred times, and you're still like, um, you know, my brother's house. I don't know. And And what psychologists are saying is when you're given a tool that no longer needs your memory to use it, your memory shuts off. You don't need it anymore. And I think the accessibility of Scripture has kind of done that. We've like, it's so accessible that it's no longer hidden in our hearts. And so this is the the meditation, right, it's the meditation. It's not just reading it, okay, you're in the story, Jesus on the boat, all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is deep inside my bones, this is like, this is something that I am really, really um, letting sink into me. Jen just texted me, which sometimes she does while I'm preaching, and this, is a good, this is a good point. She said, music too. Um, this is another way that you can get this into your... I the like, you're not allowed to do this if you have my number. Just Jen. Um, but music is a great way to make sure this gets in. I mean, notice, like, my kids, the lyrics they know um, from songs, is like, it's amazing. Your capacity to memorize is there. It's beginning to engage and let those things sink into who you are. Alright, so you, you sit silently, you read it imaginatively, you meditate on it deeply, you chew over it, you let it sink into it. And then the next one is a ratio, and this is, think of the word orient, like orient yourself. The orientation of your soul towards this. So now it's taking Jesus walking on the water towards you. And you're starting to say, Lord, how do I orient my heart in such a way that receives you coming into my boat? How do I orient my heart in such a way that when you speak, when the same way you spoke those waves to be stilled, you can speak to the things in my life to be stilled. You start to orient your, your heart towards what does that do in my life? And this is where it becomes incredibly relational. That you're not just gaining information, you are allowing the, the words of scripture to begin saying, Lord, will you change that? You can use tools like journaling, um, which we have that in our Lectio Divina. You can use examine prayer. The next, the next step after you can kind of orient your life towards what you've been meditating on is contemplation or contemplation, meaning you don't stop thinking about it as you leave the table. It becomes something that's kind of like a rock in your shoe that throughout the day you consistently are thinking back upon and you're beginning to start saying like, okay, this is now helping form how I see the world. Um, literally this, this morning I was reading Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it's a verse, and the longest chapter in the entire Bible is about the Bible, it's about your love for the Bible. And I was reading it in the message translation, which sometimes is helpful for me just to read in different translations. that get me out of my like, oh, I already know that passage. And there was this line that in Eugene Peterson's translation, I thought was so beautiful, and it was it was my life, a long obedient response to you. And like I'm like getting ready, I'm like you know brushing my teeth, and I'm like my life, a long obedient response to you. I'm like driving here this morning, and I'm like my life, a long obedient response. To you, it's that that contemplation that moves beyond just like checking a box, like okay, I read my Bible, I feel better about that weird self-righteous guilt thing I have going on inside me, and it's like oh, I'm I'm still chewing on this thing. The Japanese theologian Ken Shigematsu says, "A tree planted by a stream is fed by the flowing water and the sun in ways that are not immediately perceptible to the eye." Water nourishes the tree's roots. The soil provides the roots with minerals. And the sun nurtures the tree as it activates photosynthesis. As water, soil, and sun nourish a tree, so the word of God nourishes our soul. And I love like his imagery here. Like you don't, you can't see a tree getting nourished. You don't see it grow. But what happens is as it continues to intersect with the water and the soil and the sun and and this activation starts to happen, that begins to start bringing transformation to that tree like our souls. When we have a spiritual reading of the scripture, and the reason why I wanted to point this out this morning is I think one of the reasons we feel discouraged when reading the scripture is that not every single time you read something, you're not just like having this like crazy like moment with the Lord. You're like reading the Bible and like the reading of the day is in like Nahum or something. And you're just like, oh wow, I just, I guess I'm not doing this right. And the idea of having it being a habit of your life and a rhythm of your life is the reality is sometimes you don't know what's happening in your soul, but it's nourishing it. It's redirecting its flow and its attention, which leads to the last practice of Lectio Divina, Incarnatio which is incarnation. It's the living out, which arguably, um, if we don't have this step, we've kind of missed the whole thing. The scripture was not meant to just inform you with more knowledge. Paul warns us that knowledge actually puffs up, but love builds up. So if we do all of these steps and we're contemplating and meditating and we're silent and we're using imaginative reading and we're fully getting it, but then we refuse or we choose not to live out in an incarnational way, then we've lost the whole purpose of this book is to move us into a new way of living. It's to transform our hearts. John Wesley says, whatever light you then receive should be used to the uttermost and that immediately. Let there be no delay. Whatever you resolve, begin to execute the first moment you can. I love that. Whatever light you receive, whatever thing God's spoken to you, think about like a, how can I right now see that lived out? How can I right now in that moment see that and living out in that place? And, and, and I, would, I would warn you against making those like grand gestures rather than just ordinary things in your life. And not, not that there aren't moments where God speaks in these grand gestures to like sell everything and move somewhere and awesome. Those, if those yes. happened every single day, you would look very confusing <laughs> because you would just continue doing those things. But the reality is most of them, God's speaking in your ordinary life. is inviting you into greater levels of trust and love. So if we know the goal is to move us towards Jesus, And we're willing to ask questions like how do we engage it then the last question is well what can we expect from it what can we expect is if we engage the scriptures in a way that looks more holistic it looks more the way that we're living it out we open ourselves up to it with the spirit what can we expect from it well three things these are kind of my last three things i think we can expect repentance reality and relationship when we read the bible alongside the holy spirit of god We will see repentance in our life, we will see a new reality, a deeper reality of our life, and we will have deeper intimacy in our relationship with him. The first one is repentance. Romans 12, one through two says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's repentance. Repentance just means a change of direction. So one of the one of the effects we'll see from scripture is it changes our mind. It, it moves us out of what we would naturally think or what culture would want us to believe or what their circumstances are forcing upon us and it changes our mind towards the way of Jesus. Secondly, it changes our reality. Revelations ten nine uh, cites this really strange scene where the Apostle John and Patmos is having his visions, revelation of Jesus. And in chapter 10, verse 9, it says, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me a little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And that image is actually the image that that inspired Eugene Peterson's title of his book eat this book where where the angel looks to the apostle John and he says take this scroll don't read it eat it like have it in you but the apostle John's not the only person this happened to in Ezekiel chapter 2 Ezekiel is told to eat the word of God Jeremiah 15 he's told to eat the word of God arguably when Jesus says that man cannot live on bread and bread alone, but on the word of God, and he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, eat the word of God. And all all that's doing is when we say eat the word of God, I think what it's saying is it needs to be so in the inner part of who you are that actually starts to change the way you see everything on the outside of who you are. The whole book of Revelation, when John is told, eat this book, is a testament to an early persecuted church that believes Caesar is reigning. That everything they're experiencing is not their true version of reality. That Jesus is on the throne. And how do we know that when we read headlines and we get those emails from our bosses and we do all these things, how do we know what's real? We know it's real when we've eaten the book, when we let it get inside of us to the point where our whole sense of reality begins to be aligned with what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. I was reading this little book um, on my Sabbath by this French priest, and he was writing uh, this line that just... Like, it was one of those things I was just chewing on this, like, this, this phrase. I was meditating on this idea. He says, twice, Jesus has this time where he looks at disciples and he says, Peace be with you. And he says, When Jesus says, Peace be with you, he says, He speaks it with the same force in which He spoke, Let there be light. When Jesus says, Let there be land and sea, let there be stars in the sky. When Jesus speaks, things are created. So when Jesus says, My peace be with you, it carries the same level of force. It's his creative activity. And so on my Sabbath, I'm just I'm letting the Holy Spirit speak those words over me from the mouth of Jesus. My peace be with you. And so even, and then that's, again, what does that do? It changes my reality. My reality is no longer predicated on what's going on around me or certain circumstances. I, the one who spoke the world into existence spoke peace into my life. Peace be with me. I was looking. I was. <clears throat> I was in a store with my kids this week, and I came across this um, book. This coffee table book said the ever expanding universe. And if you know that the universe is expanding, meaning when God spoke the universe into existence, it's still going. Like when God speaks, it doesn't just fall off. So when God speaks His peace over you, let that let that just sit with you today. All of this is 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 from a deep sense of like, Lord, what do you, like you get to, I get to meet with you this morning, this this evening, this place. And like I said, there are times it feels incredibly ordinary and there's times I put down my pen, I'm like, I didn't even know what that was saying. But every once in a while when that becomes a rhythm in my life, there'll be these moments. It literally happened on Monday morning. I was sitting at Pete's Coffee and I'm just like, and I'm just, I'm journaling. I'm like, I could not have, needed a better answer from the Lord for a question I was wrestling with. But if that wasn't just a part of my my discipline, my rhythm of my life, I could have missed out on something that I so desperately needed. And then the last thing I just want to leave you with is going back to the the whole goal of this. Please hear me. The whole goal of us spending an entire Sunday morning trying to re-enchant our imaginations around the Word of God is not for us just to be better Christians, Read more, or to be more biblically literate. Although, by the way, that's a great thing to do. But when we can re-engage Scripture in a deep, meaningful way, it leads us back to relationship with Jesus. And that is the goal. The Word of God, at its best, leads us back into communion with Jesus. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men and women to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight into his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself is the core and center of their hearts. I'm gonna invite the worship team to, to come join me up here. And We're just gonna spend some time <clears throat> communing with Jesus, letting our eyes be fixed on him, But as as they do, I just want to go back to that that verse we paused at earlier, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Through Jesus, we have the Bible lived out. The very nature, values, and person of God lived out in a powerful way. So do me a favor. Would you stand to your feet, if you're able? And as you stand up, I'm just gonna invite you just to, I'm just gonna read this verse over again. This is gonna be our verse we just chew on today. We meditate on today. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So as you close your eyes, Father, we just pause. Lord, we wanna thank you for the incredible gift of the scriptures that not only cost people great effort and time, but cost many people their their life. They believe that there is something about this book that would actually bring us life. Jesus, thank you that you did not assign a textbook that has some sort of test at the end of our life. But as you gave us these scriptures, not only did you give us words, you gave us your life. That the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Lord, I wanna pray for those who've gotten into a rut. That you just help the Bible come alive to them again. But I pray for those who really struggle with reading the Bible. It's hard for them to comprehend. It's hard for them to find the time. Lord, I pray that graciously you would just speak to their hearts of different ways that they can engage your word. That would be life-giving to them. Maybe it's just turning on a chapter of scripture through their headphones and going for a walk. Maybe it's just reading a verse, starting there. Lord, I pray for those who've never read the scriptures, don't know what it's saying and how to engage it. Lord, I pray that they would find their appetite for the word of God just to become insatiable. It would just increase. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would become a church that loves your word because we love you. Lord, I pray that we would chew on and meditate on the life-giving Word so that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.